This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So Western Digital knows a thing or two or more about data, collecting it, storing it, preserving it, then managing all the endpoints and really producing useful, productive outcomes. They are providing the infrastructure and backbone for companies to do just that in a world that is collecting more and more data every day. Let's talk about this with the company's president and chief operating officer, Mike Cardano. He he, uh, sat down with us at a Bloomberg Live event. It was called The Value of Data, uh, and he gave the keynote uh, conversation chat this morning. It is kind of staggering that we are obviously living in such a data-driven world, but I think you said to me, we're kind of just scratching the surface here. Yeah, it's, we're very early in the cycle. I mean, we, we see data growing at an annual rate or being created at an annual rate of 40%. When you think of the scale on which it's being done, it's crazy. Uh, and we're now having to deal with even larger, more complex data sets and, and some of the advancements that are being made with this broader uh, data and, and the, the things that can be done are astounding. How much deeper does it go? Because is, is it not just about, and I don't mean just to belittle it, but being able to get a car so easily on our phone, where does this all take us? Because I know you and I have had a couple of conversations layers and layers of data and kind of making it all be really productive. Well, yeah, and, and I think the, the thing that's interesting is we're seeing an increasing amount of machine-generated data. So when we, we think of, a lot of times we think about useful consumer-based interaction with apps, but machine-based data and things that are being accumulated at, at just a massive scale is going to allow us to do uh, things that are that are um, different than they've ever been before. So, uh, Like you, what? So, so think Am about... Am I going to be flying, like, from my home? Home, I don't know, teleporting? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the way to think about it, the, the petroleum analogy is a great thing. So when you think about it, obviously crude oil has a certain level of value, right. um, but then it's processed and transformed into gasoline. I mean, that's exactly the same thing that's happening with data. So we're, what we see is these large repositories of data where that may have been collected for a particular purpose originally, but now what's happening is through machine learning and other new technologies, we're able to look at the data differently and get new insights and predictions which will change, uh, are going to have a profound social impact over time. And what is that social impact? Because I do think that increasingly, if you look at executives testifying on Capitol Hill just last week, Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg, obviously that's the question that really is coming to bear for the everyday person, not just investors, but just people, as to how are they going to interact with data and how is it really going to affect their lives and, and are we worried enough about the right things at this point? Well, yeah, I think you're on a, a really important point. Public policy is going to be, I think, a very important thing going forward. And, and how we deal with privacy and how we deal with, the, you know, the potential regulation of, of these companies that have such consolidated data sources. But when you when you look at the opportunity, think about healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we have very siloed and fragmented healthcare in the United States, given the structure here and given our HIPAA laws. But if you can safely aggregate that data and 
and you can mine it for insights, things like cancer research uh, will tremendously benefit. We, we do some work with the University of California, San Francisco, where they're doing research into mammography and trying to do better prediction about potential cancer risk. Well, you can't do that within any single institutional's data set, so you need a combinatorial effect. And, and when you can do that, you can advance medicine at a very rapid rate. You need data marketplaces, though, to do this. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And Tell us what that is for those well, who might not. Well, a data marketplace, if you think about all the institutions, whether they be public or private, there all is a large amount of data that exists there. And through technologies like blockchain, you're going to be able to self uh, safely um, sell, if you will, or make available the data to a particular project. So if you think about the example, again, of mammography, mm -hmm. if all the institu health institutions in the United States could combine the specific data that we're looking for, in this, in this case, uh, um, the mammogram, um, that would allow uh, that research to happen in a controlled, safe way. And, th and the nice thing about blockchain, it's distributed, uh, it's controlled, you can, ex you can share exactly what you want to share uh, and preserve or, or maintain confidentiality where necessary. Well, one of the issues or one of the areas that I know you guys play in, Mike, is sort of distribution and storage of content. And I feel like we're thinking about content in a whole different way. Right. Content, obviously, a little close to our heart here in the journalism <laughs> business. Yeah. Um, what have you seen out there in terms of consumption, how consumers especially uh, think about interacting with it, whether it's, you know, in it, at different times or how they're consuming it, where they expect it to be and when? Yeah, I, I think way to think about that is they want to be able to get access to content anytime, anywhere. So whether it's through their mobile phone. Through and the, that's just the assumption at this point. Well, like people I, I just it, it's true, right? Yeah. If you actually look at the, where the distribution is and the way the networks are developing, uh, you want the access to whatever whatever content you want, whether it's, it's paid content or user-generated content at all times. So certainly the extension of the network with the advancement of 5G in the future, this is going to get easier and easier to do. So whether that be on your TV, your, your mobile handset, tablet, computer, uh, that's really the trend. You also mentioned to me something about the democratization of data. This is an important part of it, isn't it? Oh, no question. So, you know, part of the, that is, again, blockchain plays into this. Yeah. It's really a, about the ability to share that, those critical elements of, of metadata in a safe way uh, that the community can come together and do unique uh, innovation on top of it. And that's part of the thing. Um, right now, you have sort of siloed innovation. So you have data with, with sort of controlled, controlled innovation on top of it. Once you can make that more broadly available, people are going to come up with very creative ways to take advantage of it. Are you seeing, just got about 40 seconds, are people more increasingly sharing data? Because I think data information is power and also has created some really big companies who've used data to, you know, sell lots of stuff or sell ads. Will we ultimately see that sharing that kind of is necessary to, I think, make this all work? Yeah, I think, well, sharing has been about photos and videos, right? Up until, I think it's yeah. what everybody's more familiar with. But now you're going to be sharing things like your personal health data, yeah. right? And you're going to allow that and you're going to give permissions to that because you're, trying, you're, you're thinking this is going to be something that will be useful to advance research as an example. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. Great to be a part of our event and uh, loved having you on air with us. Thank you so much. Have a safe trip home. Mike Rodeno, he's president and chief operating officer at Western Digital based in San Jose, California, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Thursday. Um, right? An interview. We don't, uh, data doesn't go by where we don't bring up the aspect of data and the, and the role it's playing. Well, absolutely. And it really is coming to the fore as not just this investing issue, but also a social one as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Change, 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 change.
So at the Bloomberg Live event where we talked about the value of data, there was a panel and it looked at blockchain, the new solution to old problems. Marie Week is general manager at IBM Blockchain. She joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Really nice to have you with uh, Jason and myself. Welcome. Thank you. Blockchain, digital currencies, I think everybody's trying to figure out where's the value, what's the usage. Uh, Mike Moran of Western Digital just talking to me and making sense about, Mike Cordano rather, you know, that the idea of using blockchain for data marketplaces. From your perspective at IBM, tell us what you're seeing in terms of usage of blockchain. So we've been engaged now in blockchain for over four years and you know while the while the audience today talked about the usage in financial services that certainly has been the current hot topic based on the origins in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies we really see the value on enterprise exchange of data and our own study of C-suite executives found that those emerging leaders who are using it today are really seeing the opportunity on business model transformation. 66% of them think it's going to change business and largely around value chains, whether that's supply chain, whether that's digital rights management, whether that is blockchain for good and humanitarian purposes. And what seems to be catching on the most of those uh, elements? Because you know we hear about you know potentially say a Walmart, uh, you know, using it from a corporate perspective. You know, you mentioned financial services, sort of the the unbanked consumer. What's the low-hanging fruit here beyond financial services? The low-hanging fruit is really in the supply chain of having the fact that it is immutable and mm -hmm. all of the participants are sharing their data that you can see all the way from the beginning sourcing through the last mile because even EDI systems today really only what look... What are EDI systems? Electronic data interchange that are used within supply chains today are electronic, are connected, but you only see one up and one down. Mm -hmm. The person before or after you in that value chain and if you want source of bit back to the origin you know is my produce organic right. is this originally sourced material for my manufacturing plant it's very hard to get that today and, and blockchain that, provides that opportunity and that's very much it, it feels like across lots of different industries because that's a, at the core of everything I, I did want to ask you you've had a, a, an amazingly varied career I think at, at IBM talk to us about sort of the strategy of you know why this is an attractive piece of what y'all are doing you know you've worked in hardware software services blockchain to some extent combines all of those things to, to one one form or another help us understand that well, we, we really see this confluence happening right now. Some people are talking about it, the next generation of the internet. Um, all of the transformation we saw in e-business was really about point-to-point -point connections mm -hmm. between people or having a hub in the middle of those connections. And what's different here now is that blockchain allows you to decentralize that data, share that data, and have a permissioned access. So you can address both privacy and transparency and build new trust. So that as a new business model and even the blockchain networks that we have today, over 70 of them that are live right now, are really getting at a point where they are connecting new users, but they use mobile and cloud and big data and machine learning. So it's really the democratization of data that's opening up these new opportunities. Because that's what I'm thinking about listeners who are hearing this conversation. When you talk about blockchain 
the network's already, the blockchain network's already in use. Like, break it down for them. Like, how will it impact my life on a, on a personal basis or maybe even on a professional basis? Well, one of, the, one of the solution areas we've been working very hard on with Maersk is trade lens. And it's really at the digitization of global trade. 80% of the goods that you use every day were on an ocean at some point in time. You know, the, the sourcing, the materials, the goods. And up to 20% of the cost of a container shipment is in paper and all of the content and the regulatory material you need to go with it. Up to 200 documents that go along with that one trade. If you can digitize it all and have it all shared across everybody from the source to the last mile, right. that can have a dramatic reduction in the cost of goods. I want to ask you, because Jason and I had a conversation with someone uh, earlier today about the impact of technology, the impact of data, and what it will do maybe for our labor market. Do you guys think about that? What jobs will be needed? What jobs won't? We just have about 45 seconds. Absolutely, and we certainly see new data science technologies and cryptography being a part of this, but far more of the motivation is around governance. We just launched mm -hmm. a center for blockchain with Columbia University to get that interdisciplinary approach. We see public policy, law, new business models. How do you take smart contracts and make them a legal document as well as a digital document are new things that are coming on the horizon. So clearly core tech skills, but a lot of things in the area of public policy and governance. Is it coming faster than we all anticipated? I think so. <laughs> Marie, thank you so much. Thanks Absolutely. for sticking around. Pleasure. Uh, Marie Week, she is general manager at IBM Blockchain, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Take it easy. So as we've been talking about, we are 10 years on from the onset of the global financial crisis, and there are only a very, very small handful of people who can talk about what happened then and what has happened since with the, the clarity that Matt Winkler has. He is the editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. And Carol, as I think back to that time personally, I remember being in the newsroom with Matt he was the editor-in-chief at right. the time, overseeing all of this coverage. And I've learned many, many things from Matt over my career at Bloomberg. And one of the things he taught me was that news, you look for the surprise. And he has a great <laughs> column out then. about the crisis and the collapse mm -hmm. and QE, quantitative easing. There were a lot of predictions that it was going to be a disaster. It was going to wreck the economy. That's not what happened. Matt Winkler is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Matt, great to be with you. So tell us about the premise of this column that's out on Bloomberg today. Well, it's great to be with you. And the premise, as you, uh, thank you very much, noted, uh, really was a surprise, which is just about everyone through 2008 um, was thinking along the lines of too big to fail, that uh, we couldn't possibly allow any kind of institution of the size of Lehman to go bankrupt uh, just like that. And in fact, on September 15th, 2008, that's exactly what happened. And the ensuing consequence, um, not just over the next few days, but really over the next few months, was the U.S. economy and to some extent even the developed economies elsewhere went into the deepest deterioration 
in modern times, really since the Second World War. It was, uh, for many people, unprecedented. They had never felt or experienced anything like it. And um, the only way uh, to get out of that slide, which was, by the way, over the next three quarters, the biggest loss of GDP probably in any chapter of American history, was to provide um, instantly a safety net for credit and finance. And because if you don't have a safety net for those two things, everything will go under. And so the Fed at the time, led by Ben Bernanke, who was in fact a professor at Princeton who made uh, the Depression his favorite and uh, most uh, studied subject, uh, decided with help from his colleagues at the Fed to do something known as quantitative easing, which essentially is to provide every way possible as much credit um, as possible. And that meant taking interest rates essentially down to zero, which is what happened with the Fed funds rate. But it also meant uh, buying for the first time in the Fed's history. And remember, the Fed goes all the way back to uh, 1913. For the first time, the Fed was buying everything it possibly could that was essentially a liquid. And in the course of doing so, it provided a floor right away right. to uh, what was um, a catastrophe. And, you know, that was the beginning. Now, as you rightly said, this was very controversial because... For a lot of people, um, they thought what the Fed was doing was, as they said, uh, debasing the currency, um, you know, dramatically increasing the money supply, uh, you know, setting the stage for runaway inflation, uh, you know, essentially doing everything that would not only compound the financial crisis and the recession, but make any recovery virtually impossible. And that had a lot of currency to the extent that as late as 2010, some very distinguished people uh, led by uh, Stanford professor uh, Taylor, um, Paul Singer, the hedge fund manager, uh, the house speaker, uh, um, uh, Boehner, uh, you know, all these people said uh, this is going to lead to ruin when in fact, uh, by June of 2009, not too long after 2008, um, the recession was over. Uh, a lot of people didn't know it at the time, but the bottom had been reached um, economically, and actually the stock market had bottomed in March of uh, 2009 and was on its way to the biggest uh, recovery uh, we've ever seen in stock market. But essentially what QE did was it provided the opportunity for the financial system to recover and get healthy um, very quickly. And it was accompanied by something that was created by a Federal Reserve Bank president who was then the uh, Treasury Secretary, mm -hmm. Tim Geithner, uh, stress tests. And while they too were uh, initially greeted with some skepticism by the industry, they actually proved to be extremely important in the context of quantitative easing because the banks that passed the test obviously had greater confidence, and the combination of the banks having greater confidence and the Fed um, essentially liquefying the financial system when it essentially had gone dry uh, was um, exactly the right medicine at the right time. And of course, the expansion that ensued 
is one that we're living with today, lesson, which may, may yeah. be the longest ever. So right. lesson, lesson learned, it worked. <laughs> well, you know, there are always going to be people who say, well, we still don't know. Right. Um, you know, I would say um, at, a, at a very minimum, obviously QE didn't hurt, um, you know. And, and other central banks have done it. And since, yeah, by the way, um, since the Fed did it, uh, most importantly, the European Central Bank, mm-hmm. um, also followed suit. And so by 2015, you had in the developed world a synchronized global recovery, uh, which is not typical. And you had every part of the world essentially growing at the same time. That's a pretty good uh, outcome, uh, given what Lehman was um, in 2008. That's pretty uh, impressive. We've got about a minute 20 left. I've got to ask you, because you were in the thick of it, in the newsroom during the financial crisis. I remember it here on the on the media side, on the radio and TV side, like not going to sleep at nights because you just the story just kept evolving. Just take us back to one point when you really thought, wow, you know, this could come undone or, or something that really stands out for you when, you know, reporting on it and, and managing the news team here. Well, we reported and others did too. One of our uh, distinguished columnists, Muhammad El-Aryan, mm-hmm. who was then, um, you know, Uh, about as famous as anyone could be in the world of money, having been, you know, the chief uh, investment uh, person, uh, CEO even, of PIMCO. He had been also uh, at Harvard uh, managing their endowment. And on literally the Monday Mm -hmm. or Tuesday after Lehman defaulted, uh, that was over the weekend, he said he told his wife uh, to go to the ATM and get as much money as she could out of the ATM because he wasn't sure the banks were going to be in business at the end of the week. Um, and for someone like that, of, of his stature right. and knowledge and influence, yeah. to be saying that and saying it so publicly, I was thinking, uh, just as a newsman, uh, you know, yeah. that that's about as bad as it gets. Yeah. Oh, my God. I got chills. Matt Winkler, columnist of Bloomberg Opinion, editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. Thank you. Thank you. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, reputation, it is something that is being talked about a lot these days, Carol, not just in Washington, Mm -hmm. but in Silicon Valley. The international cover story this week in the magazine is all about Larry Page, or more to the point, Larry Page's absence. Where's Larry? He's missing. To tell us more about this story is one of our new stars here at Bloomberg, Austin Carr. No pressure, Austin. He co-wrote the story with Mark Bergen uh, and really digs into a big question that is being asked all over the place. Austin joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Great to be with you. So what inspired this piece? Uh, well, if you were, uh, you know, watching any of the news that happened uh, this past week with uh, the tech hearings in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, you'll have noticed a uh, pretty jarring absence next to Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg, which was, of course, Larry Page. Uh, there was a place card for Google, but no uh, CEO of Alphabet, the parent company of uh, Google. Uh, and so this story sort of stems from that hearing, why he was absent, where Larry Page has been, and whether he has to sort of come forward and start speaking up around some of these issues that have been plaguing the company of late. What's great about this story is it's not only was Larry Page missing from Washington, but you asked the question and you guys dig into this. Um, he's missing from Silicon Valley too. So in other words, is he at the Alphabet Google headquarters or he's not seen a lot? 
It depends on who you talk to. I mean, Alphabet has a ton of different subsidiaries, uh, but based on uh, the reporting that Mark Bergen had done, uh, my colleague for the story, uh, he, his conclusion is really that, our conclusion is really that um, he's not as present as he used to be, mm-hmm. and his uh, involvement is more sporadic, uh, I would call it, at some of the Alphabet subsidiaries. It's more about what captivates his attention, which are more of these sort of futuristic projects of tomorrow rather than sort of the more pressing challenges of today. You've got to talk about one of those futuristic projects projects that he's working on because it's pretty wild. Are you talking about Heliox? Yes. yes. Yeah. So one of the uh, the projects that we uncovered, uh, which had been at work uh, at, under Alphabet a few years ago, was this project called Heliox, which the only way to describe it is sort of a hyperloop for bicycles. It was sort of this big plastic tube that uh, Alphabet had sort of envisioned pumping air into a mix of helium and oxygen to sort of pump at the people's backs who are riding bicycles through these things to sort of expel them. It sounds ridiculous, all, but that's the all idea. All the, all, all the way from Silicon Valley to San Francisco. Correct. 35 miles. All right. You're too young to remember this, but do you remember old banks? They used to have those like um, <laughs> cylind- cylinders. That Mnemonic you- tubes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. I, I think exactly so right. So listen, it's not surprising at a technology company to see that one of the founders, you know, one of the visionaries behind it, maybe take a backseat and work on future projects, future potential revenue streams and other people are in charge why is it so maybe problematic right now that we can't find Larry Page or that he's not in Washington with the rest of the other social media CEOs. And I think that's the the key point. I think normally uh, shareholders might like some of the CEOs to focus more on on the work, some of the innovative projects they're working on in the background uh, rather than be in the forefront like you're seeing sort of an Elon Musk uh, because there's pros and cons to that approach. But right now at this juncture in Alphabet's history, I think a lot of people have every right to ask whether or not the founder of Google, the CEO of its parent company now, and also one of the largest shareholders um, should speak up about to, uh, the values of the company, where it stands on some of these societal challenges, and sort of reset the principles for, for this stage. And, and I'm glad you said that, because this, to me, is at the core of this story, in part because of where Google came from and the ethos with which Larry Page and Sergey Brin founded this company. This is don't be evil. You know, all the way back, this company put itself in the middle of a national, maybe global conversation about what a company should do, what a company's responsibility is to society at large. That feels to me at least why people are really beyond raising an eyebrow, but really reacting in in such a meaningful way to this. For sure. I think they associated with themselves uh, with those don't be evil values for, for many, many years. And it has been this sort of playful brand, uh, a company that has prided itself on transparency, at least among employees. Um, yet we haven't really seen that uh, of late. I mean, it wasn't just Larry pa- Page to sort of uh, forego going to the hearing, but also Sundar Pichai, uh, the CEO of Google. Um, and it, it just raises questions over why that is, because, you know, it was uh, ideally a layup for the company to attend right. this and sort of, you know, more draft behind the other companies there like Facebook and, and Twitter, but in their absence, um, that sort of backfired. Well, especially when those hearings were about defending democracy. It's right. like, what? I'm sorry, you're an American company. You can't show up to defend American democracy? Right, it, yeah. And, and to the backfiring point, I mean, it really did become something of, not to be too much of a, a teenager here, it became a little bit of a meme almost, you yeah. know, coming out of this Same. hearing where senators felt 
quite willing, you know, willing and emboldened to go after Google and Alphabet. And it makes you wonder mm -hmm. what's the next chapter here as, you know, some of these lawmakers start to double down on, on the missing company. Yeah. And one of the, the critics that we talked to was the early investor, uh, Roger uh, McNamee, uh, who was an early investor in Facebook and Google. And his point was really, what do they do the next time they invite them right. to the hearing? How long can this keep going before they have to fill that empty chair? Austin Carr, Bloomberg News technology reporter, co-author of this week's international cover story. It is available right now uh, online, on the terminal, and in this week's issue of Bloomberg. Can Business I week. just say, too, the cover image is it's just, it's amazing. you know, standard, not standard, but just, you know, just Bloomberg Business Week when they vintage. do a great cover. Vintage. I guess it'll be vintage once it's... It'll be vintage uh, <laughs> down in the, the tech line. age. Exactly. <laughs> just exactly. perfect. Um, thank you so much. Thank great you. read. Shares of Google, by the way, Alphabet, I should say, the parent of Google, uh, just up about 1% in today's session, $1,173 a share even. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, Jason Kelly, this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bluebird Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. It's uh, about 11 minutes away, 10 minutes away from the closing bell. Time for the drive to the close. Abe Deshpande is founder, chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. Back with us, Jason and myself in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Nice to have you back. We're talking summer's over, fall is back. Same investment stories that we're kind of talking about. Yeah, I mean, in fact, the third quarter so far is basically like the second one. Hi, Jason and Hi. Carol. Uh, I haven't met Jason before, so oh. welcome in. Thanks Jason me. meet Abe, Abe yeah. meet Jason. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, for us, it's been kind of um, the same old story. The the main, I guess, difference between um, the first and, and second quarters uh, so far this uh, this quarter has been the the really it's been uh, the emerging market story, right? Mm -hmm. and currencies and mm -hmm. the impact of the interest rate and what's happening in, in Turkey and Bra in, in Argentina, Brazil again, you know. Uh, so what we're um, as value we're in Centerstone, you know, we're long term investors, we're value investors, but we are global investors. So we do have the option. Um, we're, we don't have the mandate, but we have the option of looking in these emerging markets. It's um, if, you know, when, if and when there are these periods of volatility. Uh, I mean, I, the one hesitance I have is, you know, um, I, me and others like me, I'm sure, uh, remember the late 1990s fin Asian financial crisis. And we know what an emerging market crisis can look like. Yeah. You can buy stocks at five times earnings and they go to one time earnings. That's right. For no reason. It can get worse. It can get a lot worse, right? But um, so hopefully I'm not... Uh, being too cautious because of that institution, that baggage I'm carrying. But so does that mean you're not buying into it yet? No, we are. Okay. I, I think I'm going slower than I would otherwise. I mean, some of these stocks are down 50% from in dollar terms just in a few months. So are you buying what, a basket? Or are you buying specific? Sectors? Very, very specific stocks. No, and and I also, you know, this idea of uh, you know sort of this monolithic approach to emerging market investing, I don't agree with. I think there are a lot of countries that really are unfairly kind of they're mistakenly identified as emerging markets um, and punished. However like mm -hmm. them because there's such a um, top-down macro kind of orientation to the um, to the investors in these markets but we're finding individually here and there and this is again I'm not I'm not saying you know 
green flag go. Uh, but you know, individually, there are some ideas we're finding here and there. Uh, what's unique about now versus say last year is that some of these uh, securities themselves, these businesses are pretty high quality. So now we're getting high quality and cheap, which is usually a good sign for valuations. But then of course, you know, I still have that at the back of my head. It's like, right. yeah, you know, they could go down a lot more. Right. You know, one of the things you point out in, in a research note that you shared with us was uh, about a trip you took that included Thailand. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's not an emerging market, obviously, that we hear a ton about. Sure. What, what was your takeaway from there? I always love these stories of, you know, when guys like you, guys like you, quote unquote, like actually get out and do, you know, that really good fundamental uh, research. So, so what did you find there that you found interesting? Well, on the ground, um, I guess this also, I have that, um, um, you know, memory of the late 90s yeah. and what these markets looked like back then from a, uh, not just a political perspective, but from a, a like a balance sheet perspective. Um, and, you know, the Thailand, um, for, for me when I was going in there, I think people had been uh, undervaluing some of the securities because of the low growth rates for the previous year and a half or so. But what had happened is the king died, and basically they economic activity does slow dramatically um, at that moment. Um, there's a mourning period of a year, mm -hmm. and then um, things should pick up again. So that's essentially what we found. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. Well, what would be your advice to investors who are kind of watching this emerging market crisis uh, unfold, you know, focused on a couple of different com uh, countries at this point? We're still wondering whether there'll be more fallout, contagion, so on and so forth. You know, is it a time to look at these markets and maybe potentially add something to your portfolio? As you said, you're being a little cautious because you remember being burned. Yeah, but we are doing it. So um, my and we're doing it unhedged, by the way. So when we're buying into these uh so um, you're in we're in currency and and stock mm. um, I would be less comfortable with that had the currencies not fallen by 50 percent <laughs> already yeah. um, but you know at you know as value investors at Centerstone um, you know we, we tend to you know be early in these these moments so and it's the game is really to to have confidence have patience and average down um, and more often than not you get a pretty decent price three four five years later you know you make a lot of money. So this could be a good moment to start thinking about it, start buying it, buying on hedge, just take the hit, averaging down. That's what we're doing at Centerstone. Any sectors? Any industries? I forget if you can, it, you how, know, how much you can drill down here. It's it's all bottom up. There, are, One is, um, the one theme that is playing in our, um, in our emerging market security selection is the uh, top line protection or inflation protection that's embedded in the type of businesses that we're buying. So in other words, uh, the stock prices are going down. In dollar terms, intrinsic values haven't really moved that much mm -hmm. because they price in dollars um, or the services are indexed to inflation uh, in, in one way or another. So those are the types of things we're looking for. So we're, in, in, in a sense, we're kind of protected long term because we, we do have inflation protection. Um, but in these moments, the stock market and the investors, because they're so, they're just so top down and macro. They yeah. punish every every single kind of company. I wonder if we can, because this is something Jason, you and I have talked about a lot this week, uh, and certainly in the magazine, Bloomberg Business Week, about ten years after Lehman, the financial mm -hmm. crisis. You know what we've learned. Uh, where were you ten years ago? I was here. I was at First Eagle Funds managing their 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 funds, wondering, oh, these 
and kind of you know uh it's interesting you brought up the talk topic so you know we're looking at all these financial stocks and i mean i did pass on all of them but it wasn't easy because they were down 50 percent, trading at well less than book value and they had all the traditional markers of being undervalued yeah um you know for for us at centerstone or when i was at first eagle you know we um our approach is one of a balance sheet safety so um, right. it, that kept us out and we thankfully avoided you know, the, most of the financial crisis. And actually, we're at our high watermark a year after the um, the bottom. So in this case, hopefully we're not, you know, I'm not making the other mistake. But, right. um, you know, so I'm, I'm protecting us and our shareholders by at least focusing on good balance sheets, good business models, and management teams that we can trust. Abe Deshpande, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Founder and Chief Investment Officer at Centerstone Investors in our New York studio. I know it's not Friday. It's Thursday. I but I still wanted to wish them a good weekend. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.